I invite us now to uh, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We've been uh, in this study of 1 Corinthians through the fall and have re-entered into it uh, here in the new year. And we're going to be looking at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. You can follow along in your bulletin. If you have your Bibles open, read along with me as I read from 1 Corinthians 7, beginning verse 1, down through verse 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, for God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word and it's true and it's instruction and guidance for us uh, for good and for what uh, you have designed for us. And we thank you and we pray that you, Holy Spirit, now would come and you would minister to us, that you would give us grace, that you would speak to our hearts and to our lives where they need to be spoken to in a manner that we might indeed be strengthened in our grace and love for you and our grace and love for one another. Uh, Father, we thank you for um, uh, this time where we can hear and be encouraged and changed and transformed by your word. Would you do that now through through your spirit? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I do counseling with uh, engaged couples prior to marriage, it's always interesting and encouraging to hear some of the questions that come up in discussions. And and it's expected that there would be questions, obviously, as two people are entering into a a new life together that impacts so many 
different areas. And, and we have discussions about things like the nature and commitment of covenant love and bonds of marriage, about communication, about family background, expectations, forgiveness, finances. And we have a session that is devoted to intimacy and sexual relations in marriage. And as you might imagine, that last one is a bit more awkward. It involves questions that can at times be a little uncomfortable. And usually I start that session just acknowledging that reality and, 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 and putting people at ease to say, this is, this is uh, uh, maybe uncomfortable, but it is important. It is good. It is good to talk about it, to understand the gift that, that sex is in the realm of marriage. And beginning in chapter 7, Paul starts to address specific questions that the, the, the believers in Corinth have raised in their correspondence with him. Remember, he's already been dealing with the whole issue of, of sexual promiscuity and immorality that's so prevalent in Corinth and, and having its effect in the church. And he said, as we saw last week, that our bodies belong to the Lord and are temples of the Holy Spirit, and therefore we are to glorify God with our bodies, and particularly in relationship to sexual intimacy. And now he turns to the whole related area of marriage and singleness, and he begins to put into a, a biblical perspective the issues surrounding uh, how these new believers in this, in this sex-charged culture, when coming into to kind of a worldview and things that are totally new, are to understand and approach these significant relationships. And in some ways, I feel like this, this text and the preaching of this text ought to come with a disclaimer, kind of like those little commercials that have the, the quick voice that comes on at the end and, and it runs through all the, the things you need to be aware of uh, in this case. And, uh, you know, a disclaimer that might say, you should know that any reading of this text in your congregation is open to misinterpretation and misunderstanding. Any preacher preaching on this text is likely to experience an increase of concerned emails and phone calls in the following weeks. And if you want to avoid common reactions in your congregation, such as pew discomfort and ruffled feathers, you may think twice about preaching on this text. So there it is. <laughs> well, there are no such disclaimers on God's word. And we can be thankful that God does not dance around delicate subjects or sugarcoat sensitive issues, but speaks his truth right to the heart of real issues in the lives of people like you and me. Now again, it does help to understand the context in which Paul is addressing these issues and these questions. When it came to marriage, there were different accepted practices and recognized statuses in the Greco-Roman society of Corinth. Servants or slaves were often allowed to marry with permission from their masters, but that situation could be altered at a moment's notice should the owner change his mind. Some people, particularly those of, of lower uh, social or economic status, lived in what we might call today common law marriages where, where a couple had been together and, and though they may not have a, a legal contract of any sort, they were considered in the eyes of society to be married. Many couples, in fact, probably a lot of couples in this time, as it still is in a lot of the parts of the world, uh, were in arranged marriages that had been set up by families, often for social, political, or economic reasons more than for love. And others, particularly in, in the upper class, might have marriages more like we're familiar with in our society, where both entered into willingly as partners and, and it was formalized in, in a ceremony of sorts. 
And of course, like today in, in that culture as well, divorce was quite easy and common. And so it was not unusual for, for people to maybe be on their second or third or even fourth marriage. And so you can imagine young Julius or, or Antonia living in Corinth, coming to faith in Christ and their whole worldview and, and understanding of God's design and purpose in marriage and sexuality is now being informed by, by God's truth and his design. And suddenly they find themselves in a circumstance where questions are being raised. I'm single. Should I, should I stay away or pursue marriage? I'm married to an unbeliever. Do I stay married or, or do I seek to get out of that? I'm married, but God has now called me to holiness and purity. Should I abstain from sexual relations even with my spouse? I'm married, but how do I deal with this, this constant pressure and temptation of society to, towards, towards sexual promiscuity or infidelity? There were likely all kinds of questions around this issue that the gospel and God's truth now raise for those in the faith. And it's not too different for us today as we find a whole idea of marriage being challenged and and changed in our society such that, that we may seek clarification and counsel. And so the church at Corinth writes to Paul to seek that clarification and counsel and he responds with both clear commands and spirit-inspired counsel that even today is, is radically positive and practical and powerful in terms of helping us face these very personal, sometimes very difficult relational issues in a God-glorifying and transform, life-transforming way. And Paul begins by addressing the issue of sex as it relates, in particular, to marriage. He talks about the goodness of sex within marriage. He says, concerning the matters about which you wrote, again referring to to some correspondence that had raised certain issues, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they were saying. And the NIV says it's good for a man not to marry, which is really not what the Greek says. The original says literally it's good not to touch a woman, which is another way of saying not to, to engage her sexually. So it's not just a question about marriage itself, but about, about, again, about sexual relations in general. And when, again, we saw last week, Paul respond to, the, to another adage, all things are lawful for me, which was taken by some as a license for sexual promiscuity and immorality, saying we can just use our bodies however we want. But Paul says there, no, your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Glorify God in your body. And here, Paul addresses those who were saying, well, it's good to refrain from all sexual relations, perhaps informed by a view that the body and therefore sex were sinful or, or evil and that, that celibacy was what is called for in order to be truly spiritual or holy. And while he does, does point out that remaining single and celibate are, in some instances, a good thing and a gift from God, and we'll talk about that, He's also very clear that a healthy sexual relationship within marriage is not only a good gift from God, but it's an important and necessary thing in God's design for that relationship between husband and wife. Indeed, marriage between a husband and a wife is the only context in which God designed and intends that one flesh union of sexual intimacy to be exercised. And Paul says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, he says, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
In other words, God has given, he has provided a beautiful, wonderful, amazing channel, if you will, through which the powerful currents of sexual desire are meant to flow. And that channel is that covenant commitment of marriage between one, a husband and a wife. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Not many wives or husbands, not another person's wife or husband, not someone who is not in God's eyes a wife or a husband, but a man is to have his own wife and a wife is to have her own husband. Now Paul is acknowledging the the powerful drive of sexual desire. Down in verse 9 he calls it a burning with passion. And there are all kinds of of temptations that we face daily to to fulfill or satisfy that desire in wrong, unhealthy, immoral ways. We know that. The proliferation and the ease of pornography, the rise of of a hookup culture, the close connection now of of sexualization and, and identity. All of these are taking what God has created good and right and has given an avenue for and and causing it to overflow the, ba- the, the banks, if you will, in ways that are not good. And the proper means God has given to pursue that passion to protect against the seduction of sexual sin is for a husband and wife to share and fulfill that God-given desire and passion together in the bond of marriage. Which is why he says that while remaining single is a good thing, If one is not able to control that desire according to God's design, then one should pursue getting married. Marriage between a man and a woman is that relationship that God has given, that he has created and in which he commands for the fulfilling of that good gift of sexual union. But even within marriage, sex is a powerful force and it can be used for good or for bad. It can be a glorious gift to one another Or it can become a source of tension or a tool of manipulation. And Paul speaks of it here in terms of of mutual rights and authority. He says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Now I don't know about you, but I hear that and I was like, that sounds pretty cold and unfeeling. (laughs) That, that, That doesn't sound like what you would, wife, it's time for our conjugal rights. You know, it's just the way he puts it is, is kind of, it kind of throws you off a little bit. And here actually is where things can get badly misconstrued and lead to problems in our relationship. Here's where certain expectations, certain demands can surface in a marriage in the name of rights or in the, in the name of what I deserve that can cause pain in a relationship rather than pleasure, that can lead to suffering rather than satisfaction, that can even lead to abuse. Paul is dealing with the question of, of withholding sex from one another in marriage for the wrong reasons, and he says, that's not good. But he's also not condoning the demanding of sex in marriage for the wrong reasons. It's not one's right over another to be demanded. The entire emphasis here is on mutuality, on a a giving of oneself to the other. He doesn't say, husbands, demand your rights. Rather, he says, husbands, give to your wife her rights. And notice Paul addresses husbands first. Husbands, your duty is to your wife 
Give to your wife her conjugal rights and vice versa. Sex in marriage is not about getting. It is about giving. It's other-centered. It speaks in terms of how can I fulfill the needs and the desires and what is rightly belongs to my wife or to my husband. It's about how can I put what my, my husband or wife wants before what I want. And this was, this was revolutionary in Paul's day when the woman, in many cases, was, was seen as having no rights at all, where only what the man wanted and deserved and could demand actually mattered. And friends, sex can still be viewed like that in our current culture and often is. But Paul says, no, no. There is, there is mutual obligation. There are mutual rights. There is mutual concern and care. There is a mutual giving to one another in this, which is part of what marriage is in the relationship of marriage. And so Paul goes back to this, this idea of a one flesh covenant union of God's creation, which he, he referred to earlier in terms of our bodies belonging to the Lord and where he says in marriage, because of that union, our bodies belong to each other. And so what he's saying is, is, is what I do with my body is not just my business. It's not just my body's concern. It's, it's my wife's business. It's my husband's business as well because the two are one flesh. The husband has authority over his wife's body and the wife has authority over her husband's body. They belong to each other and therefore what we do with our bodies in marriage matters to one another. Now, Paul here is talking about the area of sex, but it applies in other ways as well. My wonderful wife cares about my physical health, and she often is telling me and asking me to do things that take care of my physical health, and sometimes I don't want to do those things. But I owe it to her to care about that because my body belongs to her. There's a mutuality there. She and I are one, and that's true in our our marital relationship. So sexual intimacy is a precious gift of God that he's given in the context of marriage to use for his glory and for the satisfaction and the sanctification of a husband and wife in their relationship. In marriage, he has, if you're married, he has joined you together with your spouse in such a way that you belong to one another. And you have a wonderful, wonderful obligation a delightful duty, if you will, to, to give the gift of sexual intimacy to one another in a way that, that satisfies and secures that deep desire for intimacy, for union, for joy, for pleasure, for beauty, for love. Now, I know that there are all kinds of questions and all kinds of issues that arise when we talk about this here. We can come to marriage, and we do come to marriage, most of us, with all kinds of perhaps sexual pain or brokenness from prior experiences or abuse in the past. There can be physical issues that make this a, a difficult area of marriage or maybe even one that can't happen. We can come with unrealistic expectations or ideas about, about sex that are garnered from the, the culture's distorted perspective or from its glorified portrayals of what it should be like. The reality is that even for those of us who are married, the sexual relationship is one that, that requires understanding, that requires care and cultivation and like other areas of life, warrants communication and encouragement and grace and counsel. 
And so God doesn't want us to be afraid to talk about this <laughs> with one, to, to one another as husband and wife, to seek wise, godly counsel in this area. And it is an area where Satan loves to attack, as Paul speaks of here, and tempt us with dissatisfaction and discouragement so that we might be tempted to pursue it elsewhere. But Paul says it's a good thing in the context of, of marriage. And that is the place to where, where this sexual intimacy is to be exercised. And so Paul says, do not deprive one another except by mutual agreement and then only for a limited time and specific purpose to devote yourselves to prayer. There's an appropriate time to fast, if you will, from sex, just like you might from food or, or some other thing for a specific purpose to bring before the Lord in prayer, which is also a good reminder that the physical act of sex is just a culmination of so much more in the marital relationship and in our bonds together as husband and wives. You can't remain distant from one another emotionally or mentally or spiritually and hope to come together physically with any kind of degree of intimacy or fulfillment. The two are joined together. And so praying together and loving and caring for one another in other areas and ways, taking time to talk and, and know one another, all are important elements as we cultivate a desire to give ourselves to one another as husbands and wives physically. So Paul talks about the goodness of sex in marriage. And having given this counsel regarding sex within marriage, Paul now talks about the goodness of celibacy in singleness. He goes on to say that abstaining from sex in singleness is also a good gift from God. In fact, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, referring to his own status as being unmarried. So he says to those who are unmarried, including those who are widows, it is good to remain single as I am. In other words, singleness is not a second-class status. Indeed, Paul says it is actually a preferred status for some as it provides the opportunity for undivided focus and devotion to serving the Lord as it comes without the distractions and the responsibilities that, that marriage brings. And he addresses that later on in this chapter, and we'll, we'll focus more in detail on that when we get there at the end of chapter 7. But here he is addressing issues of marriage, and he wants to be sure to make the point that to say that if you are single... To remain that way is a good thing. It is a blessing. It is a gift from God. It should be encouraged. For those of you who are single, either having not yet married or, or no longer being married because of maybe the death of a spouse or perhaps even a broken marriage through divorce, don't feel pressured to get remarried or to get married. It's a good thing and a gift from God that he has you where you are and you, you, are, vi you are a vital and important part of his, his family and the body of Christ with opportunity for wholehearted devotion to him. And so God says, don't, you know, we'll go and we'll hear next week talk about being content where God has us. And he says, this is a good thing. And, and Paul recognizes here that that's a gift from God. But he says, not everyone who is single has that gift. For some, the desire for human companionship and intimate relationship are so strong and the temptation to fulfill that sexual desire is so great that Paul says in that case, you should pursue getting married. 
If you can't remain single and celibate, then don't compromise your service to the Lord with sin. Seek to find a husband or a wife. Both single and married, Paul says, each has his own gift from God. And they are good. And then lastly, he focuses on the goodness of covenant commitment within the marriage. He returns back to those who are married regarding the question of of remaining married. And first, he speaks to believers who are married to one another. And we know this because he'll give counsel as well to believers who are married to unbelieving spouses. But to Christians who are married, he says, and he notes, this is not just my teaching, but the Lord's, as we heard in Mark. Stay committed to one another in your marriage. Wives, don't separate from your husbands. It's another way of saying don't divorce. And husbands, same for you with your wives. Take that, take that word out of your marriage vocabulary in your relationship. To put it as Jesus did, what God has joined together, don't tear apart. Marriage brings two people together before God and unites them as one in such a way that, that cannot be separated without, without tearing to pieces a part of one another, as was illustrated with the paper there. Christians are to remain committed to one another in marriage for life. Now, we're not told specifically why Paul needed to address this. He's already addressed the issue of sexual immorality and its temptations. Certainly in the Corinthian culture, like ours, divorce was was probably commonplace, accepted, and seemingly an easy solution to marital differences. We know there were those in the church at Corinth who saw themselves as as kind of now super spiritual, if you will, on, on another level of spirituality. And so perhaps they were saying, we want to be, we want to be totally devoted to God, and therefore we need to we need to free ourselves from the encumbrance of our, our marriages. Or perhaps couples were simply just wrestling with the everyday struggles of life, <laughs> like we all do. Things going on at work parenting issues, financial strains, relational conflict. And they weren't really seeing that the change in their marriage that they thought Christianity would bring. And so they start thinking, well, well, maybe this isn't really working. Maybe we should seek something different. Brothers and sisters, marriage is messy for Christians just as much as it is for everyone else. But abandoning the mess doesn't make it go away. It makes it worse. And instead, as Christians, we have what we need to to clean up those messes. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have the Spirit of God at work in us. God has given us spiritual power to deal with conflict, to repent of sin, to forgive wrongs, to bear one another's burdens, to overlook one another's faults, to love one another deeply. And that power comes not in and of ourselves, but through Christ who has done all those things for us and loved us in that way. And that is why the Christian marriage vows read as they do. For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. When things are going great and when things are going terrible. As long as we both shall live. It acknowledges both the triumphs and the trials of life and it promises, it vows a commitment to one another to love and be faithful through it all. Paul's point is not to to deal with specific situations or even to address exceptions which Jesus himself gave 
when talking about fornication or adultery. And I know there are, are countless situations in each of our marriages and that we face that, that raise hard issues as we talk through these and as we work through things like this. Christ's covenant love for His church, it sets the standard for commitment in marriage. And as believers, we are called to be living witnesses, living examples of God's grace and reconciliation in our own covenant relationship together as husbands and wives. And so Paul does acknowledge that sometimes that doesn't happen. There were those in the church who were probably already divorced. Maybe there were some that were in the midst of the process of divorce. And he says, if it happens, then as Christians, stay unmarried in order to keep open the possibility of reconciliation. And friends, by God's grace, there are many examples of such reconciliation happening in a situation where a marriage has been broken up. Now, won't get into it all here, but I do believe there are situations where remarriage after divorce is possible. But only after all those attempts at reconciliation are exhausted to their, to their fullest ability and through the, through the work of God's grace. For believers, remaining committed to one another in marriage means we have to work at it. Working in our marriages to cultivate and carry out Christ's love for us and in our love for one another. And all of us who are married know that is not easy. It takes God's power at work in us and it involves the counsel and the encouragement of others around us in the body of Christ. That's why it's important for us to pray for our marriages, to pray for one another. And where we're, seeking, where we're having struggles or dealing with issues, not to be afraid to go to someone and to, and to talk about that and to, and, to, and to seek counsel in that. And lastly, Paul turns to those who are married to unbelievers. Paul says, to the rest, meaning not those who are single, not Christian couples who are married, but to those believers who are married to unbelievers. And he notes this by saying, I'm saying this, not the Lord. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, is Jesus had not specifically addressed this matter regarding marriage to unbelievers. So Paul's going to give a, uh, he, he, he's not noting this to say whatever, Whatever Jesus said, you need to listen to, but what I say, you can just, you know, take it or leave it. He's not drawing a distinction between Jesus' authority and his own authority as, a, as an apostle. He was likely writing before any of the Gospels were written, and so he's simply saying, this is a matter that, on which I don't have Jesus' specific teaching. And it's likely that this was a, a fairly substantial group of people in the early church at Corinth as husbands and wives had, had come to faith through the Gospels, but perhaps their spouses had not. And these Christians heard Paul teaching about, about believers marrying only in the Lord. And as they thought about his teaching that their bodies were now joined together with Christ, that they would have started wondering, can I stay in this marriage with an unbeliever? If we continue in marriage, am I uniting Christ to what is, and what is holy to that which is unholy? Wouldn't it be better for me to leave and to, and to find a, a Christian to marry? And Paul says, not if your husband or your wife wants to continue on and stay in the marriage. If they are willing, you should stay married. God's call to marriage is a creation ordinance. You might think, well, Paul, that creates all kinds of issues. You don't understand my situation. My husband doesn't believe what I believe. 
My wife doesn't, doesn't agree with the things that I agree with. He doesn't understand my, my real wants and needs. She, won't, she, she doesn't want me teaching this to our children. God says if he or she is willing to stay in the marriage, you need to stay. You need to stay. But why? Because the good things, the holiness you bring to the marriage as a believer united with Christ is more powerful, more influential than the bad things or the unholiness that they might bring. Paul says the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of the believing spouse. That word means they are set apart. And he's not talking about holy in the sense of salvation. If you think about it in the Old Testament, how was it? If something clean came in contact with something unclean, what happened? The became unclean. The clean became unclean, right? Christ comes, and what does Christ do in His ministry? When the clean touches the unclean, what happens? The the unclean becomes clean, and we, as those who are in Christ, now we have an impact and influence, or He does through His body to to set apart, to sanctify in some way through the benefits and the blessings of of being a part of 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 un, under God's influence in the lives of those who don't know him. And so Paul says, because of your husband or wife's faith, the blessing of God is on that marriage and on that home in such a way that the spouse, and and he also points out certainly the children in that home, now come under the influence of God's grace and mercy as they would not have before. Now, Running out of time, but I don't want to paint a rosy picture here that it makes this sound easy. It's not. Being in a, 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 an unequally yoked marriage creates difficult issues to deal with, which is why elsewhere God says believers should marry only in the Lord. There may be hostility in some areas. There may be times where the believing wife has to deliberately choose to obey God's desires or ways over her husband's. There may be circumstances where the believing husband has to endure ridicule from his unbelieving wife for his faith. There will be significant parenting issues where children are involved. But for the believer in such a relationship to live in such a way as to honor God, to love his or her spouse in the marriage, can and does bring God's blessing upon that person and upon that marriage. It may even result in that person coming to faith. You can't bank on that, as Paul says. Only God knows how he will ultimately work, and indeed he can. But the faithfulness of an unbelieving spouse to her unbelieving partner is often used by God to win the hearts of unbelievers. Peter notes that in his letter, and he encourages wives to live godly lives with their unbelieving husbands that they might be won over without a word. But in some cases, the unbelieving spouse may not want anything to do with Christianity, and they decide to end or separate and leave the marriage. And in that case, Paul says, let them go. In other words, the believing spouse is not bound to pursue the marriage. If the unbelieving spouse seeks a divorce, the believer is free from that relationship. Why shouldn't the believer seek to honor their vow and stay in the marriage at all costs? Paul says, God has called you to peace. And as much as it depends on you, yes, seek to work it out. Live at peace. Stay as long as your spouse stays. But if the unbelieving spouse wants out and staying in it will just cause them to be more hostile towards the faith or towards you and cause more issues of discord, 
Paul says, let them go. So there's the other biblical grounds for divorce besides adultery and fornication, and that's the desertion of the marriage by an unbeliever. So how do we sum all this up? Number one, we need to recognize that there's a lot of situations and a lot of things going on in individual lives and marriages and such that, that uh, can't be addressed in a, in a half an hour sermon. And so God's grace is sufficient and God comes to, to bring healing and to bring wholeness out of what is broken. And so no matter where you are in your marriage or in your past or, or in your life, there's probably some brokenness there. And God calls us, to, he's, he's come to make all things new. And so being faithful from here forward in the way that he calls us to, he will honor that and glorify that. And where there is brokenness, you can bring it to him and you can bring it and seek wholeness in that. But we need to understand, embrace, and uphold the beauty and the sanctity of marriage and the grand vision that God has given for a man and a woman to be united as one in holiness and in happiness in body and in soul, as a reflection of all that Christ is for us as his bride in the church. The biblical view of marriage and sexuality is what we as God's people need to preach, we need to pursue, we need to protect in our own lives and in our culture. But we also need to recognize and to rejoice that for some, God has given the blessing and the gift of singleness as Paul saw it and as he lived it. And it's an opportunity to live unreservedly and unencumbered for the glory of God and the building of his kingdom. And so for all, married or single, we need to pray and encourage and support the pursuit of holiness and grace in a world and in a relationship. And in relationships where, where we are often tempted by and tainted with sin and brokenness, but which Christ came to redeem. And for those who are called to marriage and gifted with a believing husband or wife, we are called to faithful commitment. And when we pursue our relationship with one another, by the grace of God, in the power of Christ and His Spirit, and overflowing with the love which God has for us, our marriages will be marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And we will, we will indeed experience both the holiness and the happiness that God intends. Maybe not as it will be when we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, but certainly as He graces us in this life. And where there are difficult turns, where there are those bumpy potholes and rough roads in our marriage, we need to keep our hands on the wheel and our eyes on the road and not give thought to heading off on our own in some stray direction. But to trust God to work and to guide and to restore through those difficult spots. And for those who find themselves unequally yoked in marriage to an unbeliever, God will sustain you. And he will sanctify you and your family as you seek to love and honor and obey and show his grace and love to your family through your life. So pray hard. <laughs> Live out that grace. Trust God with the results. And for all of us, we can remember that God is faithful. That Christ, our heavenly husband, 
who came down and wooed us and paid the bride price with his own blood for us and even now remains faithful in his love to us when we are unfaithful. And he has brought us to his wedding banquet and his banner over us is love. So we need to receive that love in faith. We need to receive it in our marriages. We need to offer it to others and live it out in our lives together. Let's pray. Father, take these things which you have given to us through your word, which you have modeled for us and empowered in us through your son, Jesus Christ, and apply them to us, right where we are, Lord. In whatever circumstance we find ourselves in today, would you speak your grace and apply your compassion and your truth and your healing to us and through us to others? And Lord, where questions have been raised in this time, I pray that you would give boldness and, and humility to seek those answers and to pursue the counsel and the wisdom that comes from your word and through your people to see healing and wholeness brought to this area of our lives and of our, our world that is so broken. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.